is always good to come to the Lord's table with God's people and to reflect upon our blessed Savior and the sacrifice that he made for us. I think it was also wonderful to feel a little bit in our moment tonight what uh, heaven will be like to celebrate the Lamb uh, with people from every tongue, tribe, and language. And uh, thank you, Bosco, for leading in our communion time and to hear that accent and to know that we are a part of a church that is worldwide and to feel the love that Christ has for uh, red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight is a children's song that we sing. And uh, I think we had a little glimpse of that as well tonight. So thank you so much, Bosco. And it is so good to have you here. I was in Sierra Leone and met Bosco uh, seven years ago. And uh, remember thinking to myself that uh, this is a fellow that has uh, some extraordinary potential in a war-ravaged country like Sierra Leone. And it has been our privilege to partner with him and uh, to assist in his education and to have him here with us. And so uh, it is a delight uh, for you to, uh, to be here. And so thank you so much for coming and blessing us. You will notice that we are tonight in 1 Corinthians 16. Now, the more astute amongst us are thinking to themselves right now, now, wait a second. It seems to me that last week we finished 1 Corinthians 14. And my elementary school teacher told me so many years ago that after 14 came the number 15. And yet, Pastor Steve, you're in 16. Are we uh, perhaps neglecting an important part of Scripture by getting to chapter 16? Well, actually... No. What we're doing is uh, we are skipping ahead to chapter 16 because chapter 15 is all about resurrection. And so we want to save that for the Easter season for obvious reasons. I think the Apostle Paul will forgive me. So that is what we're doing tonight. We are still in 1 Corinthians, but hey, look, we're in the last chapter. So we're getting close to the end. We've been in this study for quite some time, and uh, the end is in sight. And if you just look at chapter 16, if you have your Bible, you just kind of glance at it, just a cursory glance, shows that this is a different sort of uh, uh, chapter than the rest because the, you know, the verses are sort of short and you see a lot of people's names and, and if you just sort of look at it, you see places and he's talking about himself and other people and, and yes, indeed, this is that kind of chapter. It's a chapter where one commentator says the Apostle Paul gets chatty. <laughs> I like that. In fact, I liked it so much, I thought about entitling the message uh, tonight, uh, Tweets for His Peeps, uh, because 
it's kind of the feel of this chapter where there's just all these very short, brief, little, oh, don't forget about that. And hey, by the way, what about this? And here's so-and-so and they're coming here. And what about I'm coming then and you're going to do this. And it's just very, it's like a window into the personal side of not just the Apostle Paul, but the life of the early church. And so these last chapters in Paul's letters, uh, I think are, are, they're just very, they're very personal. And I, I like that. I am always glad when I come in my readings to the last chapter of one of his letters because you see the man and you see the person behind the, uh, the, uh, the apostolic title. We're tackling tonight verses 1 through 12. And this passage really revolves around two primary themes. The first is supporting God's work. And the second is supporting God's workers. Supporting God's work and supporting God's workers. Now, just to give you a little bit of background of what he's going to talk about, I have a a map up here. And this is a a map of, uh, as you see, the Mediterranean Sea and sort of the area of Greece and Asia Minor. And I have this up here because uh, uh, it's part of what's going on in this chapter. Paul is in Ephesus, which we actually don't have highlighted. It's really not that important, but he's in Ephesus. He's writing to the Corinthians, which is over here. But he's writing to them about the church in Jerusalem, which is down here. And the reason that he's doing that is that the church at Jerusalem, you'll recall, Jerusalem is where the church began at Pentecost in Acts 2. And surely thereafter, there was a persecution that began of the Jerusalem church, ironically, led by who? The Apostle Paul. So possibly one reason he has a little passion for this church is that he was the one who in the beginning really, really uh, um, made it hard on them. So when the persecution hit, there's, there was known as what there is was known as the dispersion that happened as Christians took the gospel. They spread out into uh, really the Roman Empire and took the gospel with them. Well, the continued persecution of the, in, in Jerusalem, as well as the loss of people to Asia Minor, left the Jerusalem church in very dire financial straits. Not just the church, but the people in the church as well. And so Paul has a heart for the, you know, the, the where the church began and this initial uh, congregation. And so he wants to take up a collection from all these other churches to help the church of Jerusalem. And that's what's going on now here in chapter 16. So let me read the text, uh, just the first part of the text. I'll read verses 1 through 4. As Paul talks about supporting God's work, notice what he says. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also, um, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they, uh, they will accompany me. And we'll stop right there. So we see, beginning in verse 1, what Paul calls the collection for the saints. And as I just got done saying, this was a special offering being collected for the saints at the church of Jerusalem. And we see that this is a, there are multiple churches that are getting involved in this. And so this is a multi-church effort to reach out to 
uh, the believers in Jerusalem. Now, what we find here, though, is apostolic direction, not just for the collection in Jerusalem, but really for uh, Christian stewardship of all kinds. And it's on that that I would like to talk to you and to say, what do we learn about supporting God's work from these verses? And I just want to point out a few principles that we have here. First of all, notice uh, that he lays out a principle that I'm calling first day, first priority. First day, first priority. Again, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. The first day of the week. Now, why do you suppose the Apostle Paul would say, you Christians there in Corinth, you need to set something aside for the Lord's work on the first day of the week? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, it seems to me that the first day of the week is a day of worship. Indeed, it is. And so I think we could point to that and say, what better day to set something aside to the Lord or to give to God than on the first day, on the day of worship? Uh, wonderful point. However, I do not think that's what he's actually saying here. This is not so much a matter of chronology as a matter of priority. By setting something aside on the first day of the week, it is saying implicitly that this is a first priority for me. I am not waiting until the end of the week. I'm going to set it aside at the beginning. And this principle is is an important one because what happens when you say, you know what, I'm not going to set it aside at the beginning of the week. I think I'm going to see what I can do for the Lord at the end of the week. And what is true by the end of the week? There's not so much left, is there? Not so much left. And so when we give to God first, which I think is the principle he's laying out here, what we're doing is we're showing that we are not bowing down to the idol of money or possessions, the things that money can buy, the comforts and the luxuries that money can, uh, can, can give us. We're not bowing down to that, that God is firmly in the throne of our hearts and we are loving and seeking him with priority. And of course, in, 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 we've talked so much about the Corinthian church, but just to remind you, the Corinthian culture is much like the Western culture of today. It was a very materialistic society. It was a very wealthy city. And so these people in this church no doubt reflected the culture around them where they probably were a little more well-to-do. And with that then, how easy it is to love money. The people in Corinth found their identity and their meaning in their money and in the comforts and luxuries that money can provide, just like we see so often today. In fact, Bosco, I can't help as I'm thinking, I'm even talking about this, I'm still thinking about you. I can have more than one thought at the same time. Did you know that? (laughs) Spurgeon said, during his preaching one time, he said, he counted seven, I think it was seven thoughts at the same time. Now, I can maybe come up with two at the same time. That's all I can do. But you're one of them, Bosco, because I was just thinking to myself as I was talking about this other thing with you, I was thinking about Bosco as well, that uh, Friday, Bosco went to the Chicago Auto Show. (laughs) And I've not talked to him yet about what that was like. 
But Sierra Leone is what, the like seventh, seventh poorest country in the world. And I just was thinking, what's it like for a Sierra Leonean to go to the Chicago Auto Show, which is like the epitome of American materialism on display. And uh, what must you have thought? I can't wait to ask you later. I'll just let that thought hang out there right now about what that would be like. But the, you know, the Corinthians, they didn't have an auto show, but they had that kind of mentality about them. They love the things that money could provide. So how does a Christian in Corinth and a Christian in a culture like ours fight against the idolatry of money and fight against what Paul writes elsewhere, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? How do we fight against that? We fight against it by enthroning God in our hearts. And when God has first place in our hearts, he has first place in our budget as well. First day, first priority. I think Paul also here is commending systematic and planned giving. Think of the typical uh, uh, Christian family in Corinth. Let's just go back in time. Like, what, what did they have to deal with? Well, they had a lot of the same things that we had to deal with. I mean, they had to provide shelter, and they needed to uh, pay for food, and they had other just life things that they had uh, to provide for. They had uh, 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 domestic animals that they had to buy and to care for, uh, cell phone bill, all the rest. They had it all. And so, like families have done forever... The Corinthian Christian families, they had to, okay, let's sit down and let's talk about what we're, how, how are we going to make this all work? This is kind of what we're estimating to be our income. And this is sort of what we see to be our expenses. And they had to go through all the same things that you and I have to go through just to make life work. Here's the question. In the Corinthian church, should there have been any difference in the expression of financial priority between the Christians in Corinth, and the non-Christians in Corinth. And the, question, the thing that I would say to that is, how could there help but be? Because what is true of the Christian in, in, in Corinth? They have, been, they have received the grace of God. They have, they have heard of Christ and his sacrifice for them. They, they've heard how he came from heaven, how he became poor for our sakes, how he gave his life. They'd embrace that. And there has been, there's been that transformation in their life, which Jesus said is so radical. It's like being born again. And Paul writes elsewhere, we, it's so different. We're like new creatures. How could all of that be true in the life of a Corinthian Christian and it not Find some expression in the financial priorities of the home. And I would say to you, there's no way that it could. So, no doubt there were Corinthian Christians, I think, who thought to themselves, you know, let's put this whole thing together and then let's sort of see what we got on Sunday when that rolls around. You can sort of see these Corinthian Christians probably doing that, all being materialistic like they were. Let's sort of see what we've got left over for the Lord. And so they, uh, they, they maybe didn't put a plan together for their giving. And so, but they were very disciplined in other categories. They were very disciplined paying, they had to pay off that donkey, you know. And so they were disciplined in paying off 
the, you know, the, the, the donkey. And they were uh, disciplined in uh, paying for uh, the, the young boy to go and get them the water and all, whatever else it was like. They were very disciplined with that. But when it came to God, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I would say if I was preaching 2,000 years ago to the Corinthian Christians, when the donkey gets more careful attention than God, now there's something desperately wrong. So what would you tell them? Well, this is what Paul told them. First day, first priority. Set it aside for the Lord. It's his. Put him first. Here's what Randy Alcorn writes uh, on this. He says, unless people give systematically, they rarely give substantially. The longer we wait to give, the higher the likelihood that the money will disappear. We will use it for this emergency or that indulgence. The great thing about giving immediately upon receiving it is that it removes the temptation to rob God. And so I just think this is it's such a helpful little passage here because it gives just some little principles. And the first one couldn't be any simpler. First day, first priority. Consistent, systematic, setting aside, money's for God. Maybe do it according to however you are paid. If you're paid every week, then that's easy. If you're paid every other week, okay. That money goes to the Lord. Second principle we find here is in verse 2. He says this, on the first day of every week, each of you. You see that? Each of you is to put something aside. Now, I just want to highlight that because we know that in the Corinthian church, there was a, there was a great disparity amongst the people. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, we saw how the rich were getting together early and they were having the Lord's Supper and they were having this big feast and then the poor were coming and getting nothing. And Paul says, what are you doing? Remember that in chapter 11? So we know within the church, there were, there were people of great means and there were people of, of little means. You might expect Paul to say, hey, you rich people, you need to give, you poor people, you're all up. Or some, you know, sort of make this sort of class distinction. But he doesn't do that. He says, each of you should give. But then he adds this. He has this little phrase, as he may prosper. Now you see how balanced that is? According to however God prospers us, so then shall we give. Not everyone can give the same. And God doesn't expect it. And we see that from uh, Jesus and the widow's mites, two mites actually, two pennies, that God admires the heart behind the gift. The third principle here is an important one as well, and that is that the church has a responsibility to handle monies responsibly. To handle monies responsibly. He says in verse 3, and when I arrive, he's talking about when he arrives in Corinth, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Okay, now, what do we see there? Here we have the Apostle Paul. All this money's being collected. He could have said, hey, put it in a big pile, put it in a big bag, and I'll take it by myself all the way to Jerusalem. But now, wait a second. If he would have done that, can you imagine some of the people in the, in the Corinthian and Galatian churches going, hey, wait a second, how well do we know this fellow? I know that he says he's an apostle and all the rest. He had a vision of the risen Christ. But do we really want to put into his hands all of this money and to just trust him? And Paul wisely says, listen, I'm not looking to even touch this stuff. You guys pick out people that you know have high integrity, more than one. Let's get a couple people. And they will take this offering all the way to Jerusalem. And there is a wonderful principle. And you might say, oh, come on. Can we just move on from this? No, wait a second. 
Can you think of very many things that bring a quicker discredit upon a local church than mishandling church monies? And are there not a plenty of very public examples of what happens when God's people are not careful to handle those monies responsibly? Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And there's just, again, this, this whole chapter is just very practical kind of things. Here's another practical principle. That the church needs to be very careful to have proper accountability for the monies that the Lord provides to our church. And I just want to say right now that I am profoundly thankful for uh, deacons and, you know, we got, I see Jim Kilgore back here. I see Jeff Witzke back here, all very involved in our finances and many others that are, take very careful efforts to handle the monies of our church properly. And you all, you know, you come to church, you see a basket pass by and you think, okay, that's all that I know. If you even began to know all of the policies and procedures and security that is in place, uh, you not only would be surprised, you would be proud. You would be. And I'm thankful for uh, leaders that we have that take that responsibly. And I just want to say uh, to each of them, keep up the good work. Amen? Okay? Keep up the good work. All right. So before we leave this section, a few questions that I want to ask you. First of all, where are God and his work on your financial priority list? Where is it? And How would your budget know where they are? Secondly, is your giving to God systematic and consistent? Now here on Saturday night, I'll throw this in because I don't have the time constraints that I do I have tomorrow. But you know, one of the things that uh, that church church treasurers go pale when they hear that there's a snowstorm coming on a weekend at a church. And I'll tell you why, and, and pastors do as well, by the way, but we'll talk about church treasures because it's more comfortable for me to do so. Uh, here's why. Because when a church misses, you know, services are canceled or something like that, and then you get to the next week, no church ever makes up the loss of that. Now, you would think if people were setting aside money for God, that it wouldn't make a dime of difference if you missed a weekend, Right? And yet, it it does. So, it just says to me there are many people that have no plan whatsoever for what they're doing for the Lord. There's no sense of this is God's. And I would urge you to rethink that. To rethink that. Thirdly, do opportunities to help other Christians less fortunate move your heart to action. You know, we have regular giving here at the church. And you know what else we do? Very regularly, we take up other offerings for things that we find out about. I think about, you know, we had the, uh, the example, we had the flood in the, the church in Highland. We said, you know what, this church in Highland, they flooded out. We want to help them out. Let's take up an offering. And I think we collected like $15,000 or something like that for that church to pay for them. They just moved in. I saw on the news like a week or two ago. Uh, praise the Lord for that. Uh, but we do that kind of thing. 
And I just want to say, how does your heart engage? Are you like, oh, great, another time. Why do we care about those other people? We're fine here. Ain't no water here. We see the Apostle Paul encouraging extra giving. This was an extra kind of thing. And I just want to point it out to Scripture. This was the way that it was, and I think the way that it ought to be, where our hearts are moved in extra ways for needs, not just here, but other churches and other places of the world. Amen, Bosco? Yeah, okay. All right, so we see here just some very practical principles on how to support God's work. Second part of this passage is supporting God's workers. I begin in verse 5. Here's what Paul writes. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. Any Macedonians here, by the way? No? I would think in a community like ours, we'd have somebody, Opa, or whatever it is that you say, I don't know. Uh, That's Greece, I think. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries." Now, if this feels like you're reading somebody else's mail, it's because you're reading somebody else's mail. I mean, it's very personal, isn't it? Hey, I'm coming here. I think I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to go over there. And maybe I'll see you guys and hoping. But isn't that the way that you oftentimes end your letters as well? Tell Susie that I said hi and make sure everyone knows I love them. And maybe I'll be able to come and see you. But I'm not sure because I got, you know root canal planned and I can't quite make it. And so just let everyone know that I'm thinking about them. And I mean, that's how we end our emails and our letters. And here we have the apostle Paul sounding very human, don't you think? And I kind of like that. It's just, it's just the humanity of the man that you see on display here. Now let's just squeeze this a little bit. Notice, first of all, surprisingly, that even the apostle Paul held his plans tentatively. Tentatively. He says, I might spend the winter with you, and I might not. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think if I was an apostle, that I would have a kind of direct line of guidance from God and the Holy Spirit, where I would never have to say, I might spend the winter with you, and I might not. I would just go in prayer and say, God, what should I do? And now I would know, and... I would think that it would just be like this always knowing what God wants me to do kind of an experience. And yet we see here, even the Apostle Paul had to live just like you and I do. In the tension between what we think God might want us to do and the possibility that those plans might have to change. If the Lord permits, he says. And in James 4, I won't read it, but James 4 says... Essentially the same thing. When you make your plans, recognize it's only going to happen if the Lord permits it. If the Lord permits it. So make your plans, but don't act like you are the God of your future. I think that's a good thing to remember. 
because I see some of your Facebook posts. My kid's sick, stink, can't go to the gym. Was going on vacation, but the stupid storm hit. Flights canceled. I could go on, but you know what I'm going at there, don't you? Where we're like, oh, and our plans, and we get all upset, and man, oh, wait a second. We're not sovereign over our plans. God is, isn't he? And we see even the, even the Apostle Paul had to live with that. I might be there in the winter, but I might not. I don't know. We'll see. The second thing to note here, I think, is Paul's perspective on adversity. He says in verse 8 that he is staying in Ephesus because there is a wide door of ministry that has opened to him there. But then he adds this little phrase, and there are many adversaries. Now, wait a second. This is confusing to me. Because I don't know about you, but I tend to look at doors in terms of whether there is adversity in them or not. And if I perceive that there are problems and troubles and cantankerous people, bad attitude church members, whatever it might be, I think to myself, well, God certainly wouldn't want me to do that. Right? I say that's a closed door of ministry Because look at all the adversity that would represent if I walked through that door right there. And yet Paul says, there's this wonderfully huge door open to me. And oh, by the way, it's really tough. There's great adversity there. And if you want to read about the adversity that he had in Ephesus, read Acts 19. I mean, it was like riots in Cairo against the apostle Paul. And there he is going, it's a great door of ministry. We might be going... Get me out of here. So we tend to view life this way. I know that I'm on the path that God wants me to be on because the sun is shining and there are no problems anywhere in sight. And if there are problems, clearly I've done something wrong and God is displeased with me and I need to reconsider the course and direction of my life because look at all the adversity that I'm facing here. And I think that this has got to be encouraging to a decent percentage of the people who are sitting here right now because you are probably dragging into this room tonight tremendous adversity troubles of some kind and you wonder if maybe god isn't pleased with is displeased with you and you wonder if your life is totally on the wrong track here's the apostle paul who if anybody deserved to have the kind of life, it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet what do we find? Riots and people slandering him and tearing him down. And he goes, it's an awesome door. So adversity does not necessarily mean that you are out of God's will. It doesn't mean that you've taken a wrong path. Not at all. I had a friend, I remember, who was contemplating a ministry move, and he wasn't sure whether he should do it or not. But then some people started to speak venom against him, making that ministry move. And I remember him saying to me, he said, you know what? I am definitely doing it now because that is only the enemy trying to keep me from doing that. I kind of like that. It's like, oh, I see so much adversity there. It's got to be God's will. 
I think Paul would like that as well. Well, our little glimpse into Paul's uh, personal correspondence, he just he next talks about Timothy. And you may be familiar with Timothy. Timothy was Paul's right-hand guy. He was young. He, uh, uh, he, he was uh, uh, like Paul's Padawan. I mean, he was like his, um, you know, Paul was his mentor. And yet he was young and he was timid. And so Timothy, Paul's regularly having to encourage this young man to stand up and come on, have a backbone. And yet he loved Timothy and was always looking out for him. So listen as Paul, to Paul's concern as he writes this to the Corinthians. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now clearly here, Paul is concerned about young, timid, sweet, innocent Timothy making his way to the snake pit that was the church at Corinth. He was concerned that these people would eat him alive. Imagine Timothy as the cute little bunny coming into the snake pit that Indiana Jones fell into. You know, that kind of thing. It just comes to me now. I don't know why. But it just, I mean... Wow, you can just see them because he was just so sweet and innocent and they were so nasty. Paul says, go easy on the guy, okay? Go easy on him. Receive him in peace. Send him in peace. Send him on his way. Take care of him. Look out for him. And then finally, the uh, Apollos in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. And we've met Apollos before, way back in chapter 1. Those of you that were maybe in youth group back then. Remember Paulus, he was, he was one of the, one of the, the rock stars of the church. And he had a, he had a, there were all these groupies that said, we're of Apollos. And there were other people said, no, we're of Peter. And others said, we're of Paul. But Apollos was like in the, you know, in the pantheon there of the uh, leaders that people were following. And we've talked in there about the danger of celebrity uh, Christianity, where we view certain people as being superstars, and we become groupies of them, and we more identify with them than we do with Christ. We ought not to do that. And Apollos, I think, maybe recognized that he had this following at Corinth, and it says here, it's not at all his will to come. Now, how would that be if, uh, you know, Bosco goes back, and, and a year from now, we're like, hey, remember Bosco? Yeah, we loved him. When's he coming? He doesn't want to come. We're like, well, what did we do wrong to him? I thought we treated him nice, took him to the auto show and all the rest. <laughs> so perhaps Apollos was recognizing it would not at all be healthy for the church for him to show up. And I kind of like that about Apollos. How many celebrity Christians don't go where they're popular? Just a thought for you. So... That'll be a fellow to meet in heaven and ask him a few questions, I think. Apollos. So what do you think about all this? Okay? 12 verses, personal correspondence. What do you think about how it feels and and the glimpse that you get into the life of the early church? 
You know, in some ways, this definitely is about supporting God's work and supporting God's workers. But I think that it is, it is something deeper. It is a kind of litmus test for healthy Christians and healthy churches. Now, why do I say that? Well, remember, this was a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Can you imagine what was going on as this section of the letter was read to these people? You know, uh, hey, by the way, I want you to, uh, we're going to take up another collection and it's going to another church. You're not going to benefit from it whatsoever. And oh, by the way, I might be coming, maybe, maybe not, but make preparations in case I do. I want you to send me on my way in style. I might not come though. And by the way, Timothy's coming. He's very timid. He's not going to be impressive to you whatsoever, but treat him really well. And Apollos, who you really love, he doesn't want to come. <laughs> Can you imagine the Corinthians going, who is this Paul fellow and why does he get off like this? Their response would say a lot about them, wouldn't it? And it seems to me the same is true for us even here tonight. Because what this chapter is giving us is a kind of portrait of a, of, a, of a kind of Christianity and a kind of church family and individual Christians and families that are liberal and are generous and are engaging in the life of ministry as God fulfills the Great Commission. They're all about that. They're, they're willing to engage and be a part of it and you can stay with me and another offering yeah, all right. And Jerusalem, we don't know him. We'll never see him, but let's send him money. That'll be great. We'll love it. Oh, we need some fellows to, to, to walk from Corinth all the way to Jerusalem to deliver the gift. It'll take you a month. Who wants to go? And the fellows in the church are going, I'd love to do that. That sounds awesome to me. I'd be happy to do that. Take care of Timothy. Hey, open your wallets again. Open your homes again. Open your hearts to the work of God. A letter like this says more about the church in their response than Paul in writing it. Do they have a spirit of generosity? Is there a sense of wanting to do whatever they could to help the work of God, to be for God's work, to be for God's workers? I would say to you, That by being a part of the work of God is to be a worker for God. In other words, you know, who are the workers in this story? You can say, well, Apollos is a worker, Timothy's a worker, Paul's a worker for sure. But who are the real workers? It's the people in the church that are the real workers. They are the ones that are making it happen. And that same opportunity lies right here before us in this congregation. How easy it is to maybe come and say, I'm going to come be a consumer, I'm going to take my thing, I'm going to get out the door, and not be a part of what God is doing. To not be a part of supporting God's work, supporting God's worker, and by doing that, being a worker yourself. Now, the tone of my voice would suggest that I think this is a severe problem in the church, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, I don't know, I'll let you be the judge of your own life. But I want to tell you a few things from my own experience. I've been in vocational ministry for coming on 19 years this summer. And over the years, if I, if I can speak uh, like, like Timothy, over the years, God's people have so often refreshed me 
by their love, their actions, support, prayers, notes ad infinitum, poking fun on Facebook. I love it. Little things that say, you know what? We're with you. We are partners with you in this. You are not, you're not just up there on your own. We're in it together. I remember my earlier years, I often lived in uh, the basements of, um, uh, they weren't all basements, few basements, <laughs> few rooms as well, of just people in the church that opened up their basement to me. In fact, when Bethel called me to be the senior pastor here, I was living in a basement in Indianapolis and happy as a clam down there, I might add. They had a pool. It was great. So, um, but I cannot tell you, and it would be wrong for me to be anything but profoundly thankful for how God's people have supported me over the years. And I can look around this room and see many right here amongst us. You have no idea. When you're standing in the door wide open for ministry and there is great adversity, what it means to have a fellow worker come alongside and to say, uh, you, you need a basement. Can I encourage you in some way? Can I put you at ease? Can I come alongside of you? I want you to, I'm praying for you. I want to come over for dinner. We'll bring it by. Just so many little things like that that say we are in this together. And that is healthy Christianity. It has been that from the beginning. This is one of the great blessings of local church community. We are partners together. And I would say that when a church family has a culture of personal generosity, that there is no better place to be for all of us. Now, I want to just conclude with a little word to the families here. I have a heart for the families of our church and specifically the children. And parents, I want to encourage you to model support for God's work and support for God's workers in your home. You say, well, why is that so important? Well, beyond what we've already talked about, you have little eyes and little souls that are watching you. And there are a few ways to better communicate values and priorities than for them to see you personally partnering in ministry. I remember my own family growing up. We would oftentimes have, you know, missionaries that were visiting or, you know, some pastor friend from somewhere or whatever that was some Christian worker. And my dad would finagle to have them over for dinner or something at the house. And so I had a, there, was six, there were four kids and, and, you know, maybe the fellow, you know, if he was godly, he was single, but married, maybe he was married. And, uh, 
so there'd be there'd be seven or eight of us that would be sitting around the table and and uh you know i remember just being a little boy kind of you know eating here and here's this christian worker telling about what god's doing in sierra leone like this right and to see my my dad showing care and concern and wanting to help and supporting and and just you know what get those missionary cards on the fridge let them see you and hear you praying not just lord bless the missionaries we are praying for bosco we want god to bless tact god we want sierra leone reach for the gospel and that's your monday prayer and on tuesday we're praying for the wingets in hungary god we pray that you would help reach them and as they see that it is a powerful model you know if you're a big cubs fan i'll bet your kids grow up to be cubs fans if you're a big bears fans i'll bet your kids grow up to be big bears fans and if you're a big Jesus fan and Great Commission fan, there are no guarantees with this because it's a work of the Holy Spirit. But it is a compelling apologetic for being a part of God's great work around the world. So do it. My brother and I, we're both in vocational ministry. And I don't think that's a coincidence honestly. I thank the Lord for godly parents. So show your kids generous partnership in God's work and you will be the richer for it. You will. And that's your message tonight. May God bless it to you. I'm going to ask you to stand right now if you will.